Good afternoon, everyone. This is Ali Sinar. I'm the Turkey Heritage Organization Vice President. Uh, we are a non-profit organization established to promote discussion and dialogue around Turkey's role in the international community and issues of importance in the U.S. and Turkey relationship. We are founded by a group of Turkish Americans with backgrounds in business and community leadership and are with our advisory board of scholars to foster a deep and comprehensive dialogue to strengthen the relationship between Turkey and United States as well as the larger international partners. We organize the CHO teleconferences each month, and this is our second teleconference. Today our topic is to discuss the situation in Syria. We do have three distinguished speakers. They will talk about the recent developments in the region and what would happen in 2016. Our speakers are Chuck Friley, who is the Senior Fellow at International Security Program at Harvard University. Dr. Professor Sanford Silverberg, who is, the, who is at the Kataba College. And Omar Hosena, who is the Public Relations Director at Syrian American Council. Uh, as, as we all know, Russia has, has expanded its military presence in the Eastern Mediterranean and intensified its operations in Syria. NATO allies are discussing a much stronger operation against ISIS. So there is a right now big mess going on in the region. And recently President Obama specifically mentioned how the U.S. and Turkey working together to seal the border. Republic of Turkey has suffered more than any other Western nation when it comes to ISIS-related attacks and continues to be on high alert. Uh, now, as I said, we are going to discuss about the situation in Syria. First speaker is uh, Professor Stanford Silverberg. Uh, he's going to start now. Thank you. All right. Um, I would like to begin the conversation with presenting a what I would call a uh, grand context. Uh, and my concern is the unrest and the tumult in Syria, which has uh, generated large numbers of displaced Syrians, not only in the region, but globally as well. Now, m migration of peoples, of course, has been an age-old phenomenon. It's nothing new. And here in the United States, there is, there is a concern about uh, admitting large numbers or any number of uh, Syrian Muslims. I think there are two important points to be made uh, on this issue. One is that uh, the first Muslims to uh, enter into the United States were uh, slaves so that they didn't come as immigrants uh, of their own volition, but they were brought here as uh, West African slaves so that Muslims have been a part of the American fabric uh, from the earliest part of this country's history. Secondly, uh, Syrians have uh, been uh, migrants to the United States the latter part of the 19th century and generally settled in northern urban centers and some in communities in the deep south. So that uh, we in the West, particularly in the United States, uh, have not been totally isolated from one, the, uh, the notion or the phenomenon of 
uh, migration, nor have we uh, been alone in accepting Muslims from Syria and elsewhere in the Muslim and the Arab world. And thirdly, we have been recipients of Syrians for more than a hundred years. The current situation in Syria has merely exacerbated this situation of migration. Uh, most of the Syrian displacement has, has targeted uh, European countries, and it has now uh, become a cause celebre in the Arab world, um, uh, particularly because uh, Syria... Um, has not been a, sig a signatory to the, excuse me, to the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees, and uh, all the Arab and Muslim countries around the world have national laws dealing with the acceptance of refugees, and so there is no universality there. But it does complicate the matter. As long as we have large numbers of Syrian nationals being displaced, it only adds to the intensity of the conflict and the instability both in Syria and in the Middle Eastern region. And uh, let me uh, stop there, and we'll move on to the next uh, participant uh, contributor. Mr. Filey? Sure. Mr. Oh, Filey? Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, first of all, good afternoon to everyone. Uh, let me start off by saying we are now talking well over 250,000 people who have been slaughtered in Syria, in addition to the millions who have lost their homes, uh, displaced both, both internally in Syria and externally. This is an international source of shame. This is, should be an incredible source of embarrassment for the international community. Now, I say that in full recognition of the fact that the situation in Syria presents no good options. As a matter of fact, they are all abysmal. But between uh, the virtually non-existent response of the leading international powers and first of all, the United States, and let's say a complete intervention, uh, which I would of course not advise since I'm saying the options are bad, there's still a lot more that could have been done and should still be done, such as establishing a no-fly zone, a safe haven, and more. Um, the, Syria is really, in many ways, a microcosm of all of the ills of the Middle East. It's the area where all of the region's problems converge. First of all, today, it is the uh, meeting point of the, of the historic uh, Sunni-Shia clash. It's where we see the region's leading powers playing today, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, and others as well. Uh, what happens in Syria, of course, affects its other neighbors, certainly Turkey, but Lebanon, Iraq, Israel as well. It's where we see ISIS and uh, some of the other extremist Sunni organizations, Jabhat al-Nusra and others, versus Hezbollah, and Shiite organizations. And of course, it's the place where we see Russia, the United States, France, and others, now Britain, involved as well. So this is really where the problems of the Middle East and where the leading players in the international community all converge, all come together. 
this conflict has been going on now for five years. It seems endless, the bloodletting. And frankly, I don't think that there's any, uh, any prospects for anything good happening in the near future. Now, there is a U.S.-Russian dialogue. Uh, there have been the talks, and there has been some progress recently. And, of course, never say never because we can be surprised. But I, I must say that I see very few chances of a concrete agreement coming out of this. Uh, pretty much all of the sides have conflict, conflicting interests. And the two most uh, fundamental differences or over the future of uh, Bashar Assad, whether he remains or does not remain uh, the leader of Syria, even transitionally, and who the other participants in the uh, peace talks will be. Uh, my inclination is to say that these talks are dead on arrival, but I will, of course, be very happy to be proven wrong. Let me make uh, one final point uh, in these introductory remarks. And here I'll say something that probably goes against the common wisdom and for, may, for many people maybe even the common grain. Uh, the international community is focused on ISIS. And there is no doubt that ISIS is a truly heinous and horrific organization. And in the immediate future, because of the current situation, it should be the focus of international efforts. But I think if we look at the, longer, the greater and longer-term danger in Syria, it isn't actually from ISIS. It's from uh, if Assad remains in power, and it will be because partly Russian, but mostly because of the Iranian slash Hezbollah intervention, the really great danger is that, Iran become, that excuse me, Syria becomes the forward outpost of Iran here in the heart of the Middle East. And Iran, uh, the recent nuclear agreement notwithstanding, I, I do not believe, and I think many other uh, people who deal with the Iranian issue, Iran has not foregone its long-term nuclear ambition. So an increasingly powerful Iran in the region, uh, which may in the long term become a nuclear power, is by far a greater danger than ISIS, even though, yes, ISIS must be the focus of immediate concern. So, Mark, the uh, floor is yours. Thank you so much. Uh, so, uh, you know, our opinion on this, um, so this talk is called uh, What to Do About Syria, and I think I'll just go very briefly into what we think um, should be done in Syria. Um, as the Syrian-American community and the Syrian-American Council, um, who want and advocate for a free and democratic Syria, for all Syrians to, to have equal rights and an end to the conflict. And I think I'll focus uh, my remarks on uh, U.S. foreign policy and uh, U.S. interests. Um, our objective in Syria is very simple. Um, you know, our objective is to defeat ISIS and to defeat Assad and to lead to a political transition which will stabilize the country. Um, the Assad regime... Uh, has committed the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. And uh, I agree with much of what your previous speaker was, was saying. I think it, it really uh, is important to just focus on the very basic facts of this conflict uh, uh, you know, in the opening remarks. 
of the civilians killed in Syria have been by the Assad regime. Um, and this is according to the nonpartisan Syrian Network for Human Rights. Uh, and this compares to 1.3% by rebel forces, 0.8% by ISIS, and 0.2% by the Al-Qaeda uh, affiliate Al-Nusra. Um, and of these people being killed, 45% of them, um, right about half, um, since the beginning of the conflict, but in the past two years, the vast majority of them have been killed through aerial bombardment, um, which is actually also the um, primary cause of displacement of Syrians. Um, and this has escalated in recent months. So of the 11,000 barrel bombs which have fallen in Syria since the beginning of the conflict, over 1,000 of them have fallen just in August of this year alone. So that's 1,000 out of 11,000 barrel bombs. Um, these barrel bombs are displacing people. These barrel bombs are killing civilians. Much of them are also are filled with chemical weapons. Um, you know, in September of 2014, the OPCW found compelling confirmation um, that chemical weapons were systematically and repeatedly used in Syria, specifically chlorine gas. And in March of 2015, the United Nations passed Resolution 2209 prohibiting the use of chlorine gas bombs in Syria. Just a week later, the Assad regime used uh, chemical weapons, chlorine gas bombs, on Sermin in Idlib, Syria. And Human Rights Watch has confirmed that the Assad regime has launched at least three dozen of these chemical attacks just in the past year. Um, so the Assad regime continues to flagrantly disregard UN Security Council resolutions, and this is having extensive um, effects um, on our policy and on the fight against ISIS. Um, I'll just quote General David Petraeus, who in testimony in the U.S. Congress uh, two months ago at the Senate Armed Services Committee said that Assad's barrel bombs are the principal driver of the radicalization fueling ISIS and the refugee crisis. So uh, it's very important to look at the barrel bombs and um, to, see, um, to see them as a major factor inhibiting our fight against ISIS. Um, what to do about Syria? We, we believe, first and foremost, um, as your previous speaker said, we need to create a no-fly zone and multiple safe zones, both in the north of the country and in the south of the country, to protect civilians stop these barrel bombs, end the refugee crisis, and promote the anti-ISIS fight in Syria um, by uh, creating safe havens where um, civilians can live without harm of ISIS. Um, you know, we support strongly um, the strikes against ISIS done by the coalition. Um, ISIS is an enemy of the Syrian people. They've killed more Syrian Muslims than any other group. Actually, their biggest massacre was of the Shaitat tribe in August 2014, where they killed 700 people in one day. Um, 700 people. And they were all Syrian anti-Assad Sunnis um, who, were, who were killed. Um, but the, the, the problem with our current strategy is that while we are rightly striking ISIS, um, we are not also protecting the civilian population from Assad, and this is creating a perception that we are coordinating with the regime, which is helping the narrative, not just of ISIS, but of other 
um, extreme groups. And secondly, is inhibiting the fight by anti-Assad, anti-ISIS rebels against ISIS. Uh, because if these rebels are going to be fighting ISIS and then also be struck by Assad, um, this is inhibiting the very um, uh, policy that we are trying to promote um, by having boots on the ground uh, to fight ISIS. And that's why the barrel bombs are a very, very um, important factor to stop. Um, second of all, what to do about Syria, um, it's important to uh, remember the essential point, which is that to remove ISIS, we must remove Assad. And the reason why is crystal clear as daylight. The Assad regime compromises the anti-ISIS efforts. His policies are the root cause of ISIS. They are the magnet, as Secretary of State uh, John Kerry said, um, for ISIS. Uh, he also said there is a symbiosis between both. And I mean, it's clear. If you look at the history, it is very clear. The Assad regime under his father, Hafez al-Assad, was the first country when the uh, State Department's state sponsor of terrorism list was first released on December 29, 1979. Assad Syria was the first country placed on this list. Um, and Assad and his father have a long history of aiding and abetting terrorist organizations since then, including Hamas, Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was the forefather of ISIS, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and the PKK. Um, from 2003 to 2010, while Al-Qaeda was killing American troops and Iraqi civilians, the Assad regime, according to General John Keane, who uh, served our nation as an advisor to, commander in, to, as an advisor to commanders in Iraq, uh, especially during the surge, um, General John Keane tells us that Syrian intelligence services uh, by the Assad regime facilitated the movement of Al-Qaeda from Damascus airport to the eastern border of Syria. Uh, the Assad regime funded Al-Qaeda um, before, before ISIS in 2012 and 2013 through secret oil deals near the Iraqi border as confirmed by multiple British and American uh, uh, diplomats um, and there's a great article about this that was in the UK Telegraph. Uh, just last week, Adam Susbin of the U.S. Department of Treasury noted that the Assad regime is, quote, buying a great deal of oil from ISIS. Um, the Assad regime's uh, oil trade with ISIS constitutes millions and millions of dollars of trade. That's a quote from Adam Susbin of the Treasury Department. Uh, the U.S. Department of Treasury just last month and the European Union um, earlier this year have confirmed that the Assad regime is buying oil through George Haswani, who is a Syrian-Russian businessman who facilitates the transaction. But even more importantly than all of these factors, the Assad regime does not fight ISIS. And that is enough to realize why his removal is essential in the fight against ISIS and why he is not a real partner against ISIS. According to IHS Jains, um, as you know, one of the most respected military intelligence monitoring companies, um, open source companies, Assad and ISIS have been, quote, ignoring each other on the battlefield. Only 6% of the time, Assad targets ISIS. 
and only 13% of the time ISIS targets Assad. And I think a great example of that um, was earlier this year when Palmyra, which was defended by thousands of Assad troops with heavy firepower, barely put up a fight and withdrew to a few hundred ISIS fighters to allow them to take the city. Um, not only this, but Assad airstrikes have on moderate rebels that are fighting Assad and ISIS have directly supported ISIS. Actually, the U.S. State Department has said in June 2015 that basically Assad was acting as ISIS's air force. Um, State Department spokeswoman Mary Harf said at the time, in June 2015, that Assad is actively seeking to bolster the position of ISIS for his cynical reasons. Um, during, it, during the time when ISIS was advancing on Aleppo, um, the Assad regime launched airstrikes in support of ISIS, which uh, was confirmed by our own government and other foreign governments. So the Assad regime must be removed for us to truly defeat ISIS, and, uh, and for that we, we strongly support a no-fly zone uh, at, to, uh, to protect civilians and to protect the moderate Syrian rebels fighting Assad and ISIS from all enemies, something that General David Petraeus um, has noted. Um, and, uh, and some may ask, how will this no-fly zone uh, work um, with the Russian intervention in Syria? Um, you know, we've had presidential candidates who have said we should shoot down Russian planes, and, and uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about this. Uh, I think it's very clear how a no-fly zone would work um, with the Russian intervention. Um, General Petraeus last month said, that a no-fly zone in Syria would be easily workable with Russian intervention uh, if, for every Russian violation of the no-fly zone, American uh, airstrikes targeted Assad's ground forces in retaliation. Uh, this would increase the cost of violation of the no-fly zone to such a high degree that the Russians would not have any incentive to violate the no-fly zone. Um, secondly, as the Turks have shown us um, a few weeks ago when Russia illegally violated their airspace, um, we have to be willing to shoot down um, any plane that enters into a no-fly zone, um, especially as the Russian airstrikes are extensively strengthening ISIS in Syria um, by overwhelmingly targeting the moderate opposition, um, mostly the CIA vetted and supported moderate opposition, which is fighting Assad and ISIS. According to Reuters, 80% of Russia's more than 100 airstrikes since September 30th have targeted non-ISIS areas. And just last week, the Russian military of defense, by their own admission, said that Russia was specifically targeting depots uh, containing American TAU missiles in Syria, in essence admitting that the CIA-backed groups are the primary targets of Putin. Um, and this has caused ISIS to expand. On October 10th, ISIS expanded in Aleppo from the Russian airstrikes and are continuing to expand. Um, and so we believe the most important thing um, that can be done for Syria are these no-fly zones, two no-fly zones, one in the north 
um, and one in the south, um, to support the moderate rebels who are fighting ISIS, to protect civilians from the barrel bombs, to end um, ISIS's recruitment um, through this primary, mo- uh, primary uh, factor of radicalization, as, as General Petraeus has said it. And I think it's important to note um, that to this day, the moderate Syrian opposition in Syria has been the most successful in the fight against ISIS. The first group to fight ISIS in Syria was the moderate Syrian opposition in January of 2014, um, seven months before the American airstrikes were launched. Actually, the rebels called for airstrikes much earlier, but unfortunately the Obama administration waited and did not strike, um, which you know, has, was a critical um, mistake and, uh, and, and ISIS expanded phenomenally during that period. Um, seven months before the American airstrikes began in January 2014, Syrian rebels expelled ISIS from all of Idlib province and major parts of Aleppo province. And there was a, a movement all around the country of anti-ISIS protests coupled with rebel offenses. To this day, this was the worst blow that ISIS ever had. It is very important if we are to take out ISIS to support those fighting ISIS um, and the Assad regime on the ground and Al-Qaeda and other radical groups and to try to move Syria to free and democratic Syria um, for all Syrians. And, and the last thing I'll note is the current process in Vienna, um, which is going on um, for a political solution to the crisis and um, for removing the Assad regime, is not going to work unless there is sufficient pressure on Iran and Russia, the primary backers of the Assad regime, and the Assad regime to compromise. Um, And unfortunately, five years of continuing failed diplomatic negotiations without pressure has led to the same failures over and over again. You know, as Albert Einstein said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. We started the diplomatic path in 2011 with the Arab League monitoring plan and the Arab League plan, 2012 with the Kofi Annan plan. We've had Geneva 1 and Geneva 2, which both led to failure, and Dimastora's local ceasefire initiative last year, which led to failure. And why did they lead to failure? Because the Assad regime has no incentive to compromise without sufficient pressure on it by the international community. And until we can create a no-fly zone to protect civilians from Assad's Air Force, which is killing everybody and which is destroying the country every day, and to put pressure to weaken the Assad regime, to compel it to come to the negotiating table, as well as Iran and Russia, I don't believe that the Assad regime will accept um, any compromises. Um, we support a political solution as Syrian Americans. Uh, we, we believe in the diplomatic solution, but the di- diplomatic solution cannot come without leverage. Unfortunately, these talks continue without leverage, and that's why, unfortunately, we see no hope in sight. And that's the end of my remarks. Thank you so much. Thank you, Omar. Uh, now I'd like to, again, take a uh, basically... <clears throat> ask a question to the, the other speakers, and including you. Now, all these developments that you all mentioned, uh, considering that we're going into a new year and the prolonged war has been going into its fifth, six years now, uh, what do you think in 2016, what types of results are we expecting? What are the best or what are the worst uh, outcomes of this uh, ongoing conflict in Syria? 
Well, I think from from uh, the American perspective, uh, we would like to, Americans would like to see some kind of uh, stability installed in Syria. And from from our public uh, pronouncements, we would like to see regime change. Now, regime change necessarily re- removes uh, Bashar al-Assad's regime from power. And uh, Assad, of course, maintains his primary support from the Alawite community in Syria. Uh, removing him will necessarily then isolate the Alawis. And the question is, will that result in some sort of uh, sectarian violence uh, between Alawites and Sunnis, Sunnis and Shia in Syria? So who is going to provide that stability? There is an array of rebel groups or oppositional groups to the Assad regime. Which one of them is capable of uniting the others into a cohesive uh, proto-democratic type that will be able to, one, hold the country together and deny, deny, uh, undo external influence. Now, the Russians, if they allow uh, the Assad regime to fall, will demand that a pro-Russian uh, alternative be, be put in its place. That, of course, will not be acceptable to the United States, nor will it be acceptable to uh, the Sunni majority in the region, and it will also create hostility with uh, Iran uh, to, to the east. Uh, Iran is is about to receive a great deal of money as uh, the United States releases uh, its re- releases Iranian funds, uh, and Iran has as its pro- one of its primary goals is to assert its influence throughout the uh, the, the, the Shia crescent into the Persian Gulf and to offset Saudi uh, influence in the region. Syria, therefore, plays an important ba- is an important balancer, although in a negative fashion. Uh, I must say that uh, I am very concerned about the proposal of a no-fly zone. The issue was brought up by Omar, and uh, there was an indication that the United States should not fear uh, Russian Russian interference with a no-fly zone, meaning that he and other uh, conservatives in this country and pro-military force folk uh, have no fear about shooting down uh, Soviet aircraft, which can only uh, result in some kind of an escalation going well beyond the Syrian borders uh, to other areas of perhaps southeastern Europe uh, and, uh, and increasing the tension between the Soviet Union and the United States, which, in, which I, can, I find difficult to understand how that will reflect favorably uh, upon inducing uh, stability in, in Syria. Uh, now, there is an attempt, I think, by many commentators 
to uh, introduce what is commonly referred to a solution to the Syrian problem. I am not a supporter of the notion of, of, of solutions. I don't believe there are solutions to uh, political problems. My argument has always been uh, in print and in oral conversations that you manage conflict to a reasonable level of, of acceptance by all the participants, which in Syria will necessarily mean some sort of a coalition of responsible and reasonable parties. Can that be done? Well, I'm sure it can be done for some brief period of time. Can there be a long-term uh, coalition? We have not seen that anywhere in the uh, Arab in the Arab world. Now we've seen it in the Muslim world, but uh, we have not seen it in Arab world governments that typically uh, find themselves in an autocratic and an autocratic system, or if it's uh, reasonably democratic, is based along uh, patrimonial lines or uh, sectarian lines. Uh, and so that is going to be the real difficulty. And if we note the the uh, string of regimes in Syria from it, from the country's origin, modern origin, uh, it has been uh, racked by uh, uh, military coups d'état, uh, a strong military. Uh, I uh, I don't believe that the Syrian military. Is, is a particularly strong factor in the Middle Eastern military balance. It probably is a, an important factor in internal or domestic politics in Syria, but you have to re remember that a considerable portion of the Syrian military elite uh, uh, is a part of the displaced Syrian population, so that Syria has lost much of its military capability. Uh, they, many of the senior officers have left the country. Uh, there still is the domestic demand by Syria for a return of the Golan, uh, to which Israel will place a high uh, demand or something uh, in, 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 as payment for that action to take place. So, uh, if you're looking for some uh, management model to, res to resolve to, to some degree the conflict in Syria, I don't think it's going to come about in 2016. If you limit your conversation to, uh, to uh, uh, an annual parameter, it's just a much too limiting temporal uh, condition. Uh, and let me leave it at that and await other other uh, contributors. Okay. Mr. Finley? Yeah, um, I don't think I'm going to add to the optimism here. First of all, I think that to speak of a free and democratic and stable Syria is unfortunately a pipe dream. It is totally removed from reality. There is absolutely no prospect of that happening. I would say, as a matter of fact, that the political entity known as Syria does not exist anymore. And it is unlikely that it will come back together at any point in the future. I think some optimists 
speak of a potential outcome which might lead to some sort of federated or federal system in Syria in the future, I think it's far more likely that what I said a minute ago is the case that the political entity known as Syria no longer exists and that it will split into its um, three primary parts, Sunni, Alawi, and the Kurds. Uh, unfortunately, and contributing to this uh, most unfortunate situation is the fact that there are no truly moderate and progressive opposition forces of consequence in Israel, in, in Syria. Um, there, are, there may be some moderate and progressive forces, but they have virtually no, uh, no role of any consequence in the country. Now, the prospects of Russia, and even more so Iran, agreeing to Assad being pushed out are also uh, almost non-existent, certainly in the case of uh, Iran, but probably Russia as well. Both of them are looking at the Syrian situation, not as Syria. Neither one of them could really care very much about Syria. They're both looking at it in terms of their overall strategic policy in the region. And it just so happens that for the Iranians, um, an Alawite-led, and in their case, probably an Assad-led Syria is the linchpin to their entire uh, regional strategy, certainly in the western part of the Middle East. And Russia, too, has based its uh, policy in the region and continues to do so on a very, very close relationship with the Assad regime. So I think that really the prospects of either, either of them changing that approach are very, very slim. And even if they do, uh, Mr. Assad himself, frankly, has no intentions of committing suicide. He has no intentions of stepping down. And he has demonstrated in the most brutal way possible that he's willing to let the Syrian people pay whatever price may be necessary for him to remain in power. So I think what we're looking at is an ongoing slaughter in 2016 maybe some limited um, accommodations, maybe there could be a temporary reduction in violence. Uh, I don't want to use the word ceasefire because I don't think there are significant prospects of that. We'll get to see an ongoing slaughter. Now, one of the big questions here, this is first and foremost for the United States, but it's true for the other Western countries as well, and actually it's true of, for Russia as well. Are they willing to send in any ground forces of consequence? And I think the answer is no. And there are actually pretty good reasons for that. But let's also recognize the bitter truth is that in the absence of a ground force, there isn't going to be a significant change on the ground because airstrikes can contain, they can limit, they can possibly roll ISIS back a bit. They're not going to solve the problem. I would uh, like to join uh, the last speaker in saying that I think that Turning this situation into a potential confrontation between the United States and Russia, for example, if, let's say, Russia violates a potential no-fly zone and the U.S. in retaliation then attacks pro-Assad forces, I, this is precisely not the way to go. We do not need a, a U.S.-Russian confrontation, a military confrontation, potentially, over the Russian situation, the Syrian situation, as it is uh, deconfliction is difficult uh, enough. 
Um, next year, there may be growing danger of spillover of the situation from Syria into its uh, other bordering countries, into Turkey, Lebanon, and uh, across the Golan Heights border with Israel. I don't see, as I said, a solution, and I frankly don't see much, uh, much chance of a management of the conflict. Uh, it's just going to continue. Eventually, eventually it'll have to be resolved one way or the other, because I don't think, at least based on the current balance of uh, force between the different players, it doesn't seem like anyone can achieve a decisive victory. Uh, so the battle will go on for quite a while. Eventually, this can only be resolved with some sort of diplomatic solution, but uh, unfortunately, I think we're still far away from that. Amar, very briefly, would you like to add something to that? Yes. Um, well, I would just like to say, if we continue this current policy of disengagement, um, and of diplomatic activity without taking the necessary leverage to push for um, a real political solution, um, we will have the continuing results that we're having, which is not just more slaughter, but more radicalism and uh, ex uh, increasing strength to all terrorist organizations in the area. And I think that's something that um, those who advocate such disengagement are going to have to uh, acknowledge. Um, you know, when the conflict first started, um, we did not have Hezbollah on the ground in Syria gaining continuing fighting experience every day. Um, Al-Qaeda gaining fighting experience in Syria, declaring an emirate, and getting more fighting experience every day. We didn't have ISIS. Actually, there was a memo by the Defense Intelligence Agency in 2012 uh, which said that, I, that the, which basically predicted that Al Qaeda in Syria and Al Qaeda in Iraq may form um, some sort of proto-state, um, and that uh, they were getting stronger and they were increasing. Um, and unfortunately, you know, now we have a caliphate the size of Indiana, which continues to uh, affect, uh, attack um, Syrians and those in the region and those in the West. And, uh, you know, it is, it, it, which uh, we have no choice but to defeat, destroy, um, and dismantle. So we can't afford the same policy. And, yes, there has to be a diplomatic solution, um, but it is absurd to um, advocate for a diplomatic solution without um, sufficient um, military pressure on Assad, Russia, and Iran um, to, um, to concede um, to, uh, you know, compromise and get to a compromise, um, you know, uh, the United States, the West, and even the Syrian opposition cannot get everything that it wants. Um, however, the Syrian opposition has compromised numerous times on numerous occasions. The last time was in Geneva, too, um, on many issues, um, including allowing, um, you know, Assad to evade prosecution, which is a huge compromise, um, which uh, allowing Assad regime figures um, some of them to to uh, remain um, accepting the a um, you know as Geneva two calls for and as the Syrian opposition has endorsed Geneva two a transitional governing body which will be appointed by both um, representatives of the regime and the opposition without Assad um, which so the Syrian opposition has agreed to many concessions 
Um, but the Assad regime continues to even reject the notion of compromise. Um, and without sufficient compromises by Russia, Iran, um, and Assad, which are actually increasing the amount of money they are sending, the amount of um, slaughter that they are doing, um, the amount of killing that is happening every single day, without sufficient uh, concessions from them, we can't get to the solution, and we're basically accepting a reality where we have a stronger um, ISIS, a stronger Al-Qaeda, a stronger PKK, a stronger Hezbollah, and, uh, and more and more radicalization, sectarianism, and polarization. And uh, lastly, um, this is why we need the no-fly zone, because the no-fly zone is one critical strategic step, and I think now um, it is clearer and clearer every day that those opposing the no-fly zone are the ones in the political fringes and out of the mainstream as we have the top um, Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton supporting it, the top Republican candidates also supporting it from Jeb Bush to Marco Rubio to John Kasich to Chris Christie. And um, we have the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, a Republican, supporting it, Elliot Engel, the Democrat ranking member, supporting it, Mary Kaptur, a Democrat from Ohio, supporting it, Dick Durbin, a Democrat from Illinois, supporting it. So we have increasing bipartisan support. Just last week, another 10 senators signed a letter supporting it. I mean, it is too little, too late, um, but there is more and more uh, support for this. Um, you know, we know John Kerry um, in a New York Times article was pushing for it behind the scenes in the administration um, only be to, to be rejected by Obama. We know multiple Obama administration officials after leaving have stated their support um, for this policy, including um, just recently the um, top Pentagon official on Russia. And I think it is clear that we need to implement this critical strategic step. I think it is... Um, very absurd that we allow Russia to implement its own no-fly zone in Syria um, to prohibit U.S. planes to fly in areas which they want to fly, and we allow Russia to hit our own CIA-backed ground troops. Actually, this was one of the CIA's and the United States and the Obama administration's most successful policies in Syria, which was the establishment and strengthening of the Southern Front, which is the biggest um, Free Syrian Army contingent in Syria, mostly due to the United States' as support um, and, and help uh, of organizing, of training, and of arming this group since 2013, um, which is a democratic um, and moderate um, rebel group, as our own government even acknowledges. Um, and um, we are, after building and, 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 and building up this force, we are allowing Russia to hit our ground forces um, without, you know, fear of any consequences, but prohibiting our own selves from taking the leadership um, to hit Russia's ground forces, which are the Assad regime um, in this conflict, um, in the case of a, uh, a no-fly zone. Um, we're prohibiting ourselves from hitting Russia's ground forces, even when it runs directly contrary to our own interests, um, makes a political solution in Syria further out of sight, continues the conflict, increases radicalization, polarization, and harms us in the fight against ISIS. So while I am pessimistic for 2016, uh, because what the U.S. needs to do about Syria 
doesn't look like it's going to happen under this administration, uh, which has utterly failed in every respect in terms of Syria. Um, I am optimistic, at the very least, that there is continuing bipartisan consensus um, in both parties of the way uh, of the uh, essential reforms that need to be made to U.S. Syria policy. And um, it looks like, at the very least, um, w with, uh, with uh, next year, 2017, uh, when we have a new president, which, whichever party they'll come from, the sort of ideas that our major generals have been advocating, whether it's, you know, General Petraeus on, you know, or General Wesley Clark or, you know, those Obama administration officials who left and this continuing or this growing consensus, it does look more likely um, that this will happen uh, in the next administration. And, uh, and that is the small amount of optimism I will have uh, about Syria. But, um, you know, as I said uh, earlier in my opening remarks, the uh, 1,000 of the 11,000 barrel bombs were used just this year. Um, you know, uh, the amount of chemical weapons attacks this year are higher than any other year in Syria. Um, you know, the amount of killing every day has increased in Syria. The amount of refugees that leave every day has increased in Syria. Um, so I think that 2016, um, if we don't have a change in policy, uh, will, lead to, le will lead to more and more of this. Um, and unfortunately, um, uh, you know, without um, the no-fly zone and without um, the leverage needed to really bring about a diplomatic solution, the world is going to have to deal with the fallout, which includes more refugees, um, more extremism, and uh, everything that was, uh, and more destabilization, not just of Syria, but of the, of the broader region. I think one thing when you look at the refugees, and this will be just my final point that I want to make, um, okay, just, you, know, you can't divorce the refugee issue with U.S. foreign policy uh, in Syria. Um, and if you look at the, you know, you can't just look at it in terms of refugee policy. So if we took every refugee that leaves Syria every day, um, we are not going to be able to keep up because the amount of refugees that leave today in December each day is much higher than the amount of refugees that left every day in August, which is much higher than the amount of refugees that left in March. And especially after the Russian bombardment, there have been three huge waves of refugees and of internally displaced. So we have 11 million displaced in Syria. Now it's very close to 12. Um, it should be 12 in a few months, which is the majority of the country um, being displaced. Omar, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to cut you short because we're running out of time, and I would like to give participants uh, time to ask questions. Okay. There seems to be some, a lack of redundancy in some of the commentary. On one hand, there is a demand for a, a political restructuring of the governing system in Syria. Uh, and on the other hand, there's uh, the, a discussion on uh, milit a military approach to uh, to the civil conflict in uh, Syria and the large focus on, on the use of air power. And we know that air power alone 
is not going to be a sufficiently significant or have a significant impact uh, in reducing the presence of ISIS, uh, Al-Qaeda, and its uh, affiliate, uh, Shabbat al-Nusra. Uh, and it's not, going to, uh, it's not going to deter the influence of Iran. That is going to come uh, 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 either on the ground with military force on the ground or some manner in which uh, we can combat the recruitment of Islamic uh, Islamic extremism. Now, the Saudis have just recently produced a uh, proposal for a coalition of Arab partners that can maybe provide greater ground military forces, and uh, because of their cultural affiliation with what uh, with the c- combatants in Syria, perhaps this proposed coalition can uh, attack uh, the Islamic extremists from an ideological and a uh, theological proponent but uh you you can't you can't focus on the military and then focus uh, simultaneously on a political solution when you're looking at the military mainly from uh an, an air power perspective and let me try to keep these remarks brief which I, which I hope we all can do here all right well thank you very much now I want to go to Q&A session so people uh, are <clears throat> callers that can ask you some questions now, for those who like to ask questions, please dial star six, and you'll be lined up for questioning. And uh, as I and I will be commanding from here uh, for the questions. If there are no, uh, we'll we'll can um, definitely there's see one. All right, we'll go ahead and take this question first. Hello, uh, this is Dr. Mark Meyerowitz. How are you? I love the uh, the conference call. is excellent. Um, my questions are follows. First of all. Secretary Kerry today, after meeting or yesterday after meeting with Putin, said the United States and our partners are not are not seeking so-called regime change. What is the implication of that? And what do you think are Russia's intentions beyond Syria? Do they have intentions beyond Syria to expand their power and influence? What do you think? I'm willing to start with that one. Um, one sec. Look, um, the administration has moderated its policy a bit in not presenting Assad's departure as a precondition for everything else. But that doesn't mean that the U.S. has uh, abandoned the fundamental objective of seeing him out. And it's frankly hard for the U.S. to take any other position even though one could make the argument that there, were, there are reasons for leaving him in power, simply from a moral point of view. The United States cannot uh, be seen, it cannot allow itself to be seen to be supporting a mass murderer of, uh, of Assad's uh, coward. So I think there's an attempt here to try and smooth over some of the differences uh, with the Russians and with the Iranians here to see if somehow we can get this political process moving. But as I said before, um, they're in the end, they're not, they being Iran and Russia, are not going to abandon Assad, I think, under any circumstances. And that's why the political process, at least for the foreseeable future, doesn't really have um, too much, doesn't really have to, where to go, I don't think. 
Now, Russia, of course, has uh, broader ambitions in the Middle East, which are part of its attempt to counter American influence in the world generally. I think one of Putin's foremost objectives in life today is actually to counter or to stick it to the United States even. And the Middle East is actually one of the few areas where the Russians have both the opportunity and some of the capabilities necessary to do so. And yes, they would certainly like to broaden their influence in the region. And I think they view what is happening in Syria today uh, and what's happened with the Iranians in recent months, the, the nuclear deal actually uh, successes from their point of view. And Syria also helps divert attention from Ukraine and maybe reduce uh, the pressure, maybe get the U.S. to reduce the sanctions against them. Let me just add a couple of other, uh, additional remarks based on some of the things that were said before. The, I fully agree that the Obama administration has mishandled the Syrian situation. They should have done more. But again, the options that they faced from day one were abysmal. And it's, it's most improbable that there is any option for resolving this issue. Uh, if any really exist, they require a major commitment of ground forces. Now, if you're willing to do that, then okay, then maybe you can go forward. So far, even the Republican candidates aren't talking about that. There doesn't seem to be virtually any sentiment for that in the United States today, and I don't see it existing in Europe either. So let's be realistic here. Things, unfortunately, aren't going to change, aren't going to change here for the better. And let me just make one final comment here. Uh, Russia has not targeted American forces, and Russia has not imposed a no-fly zone against the United States. Let's not let our uh, rhetoric um, take us past the, the factual. They, they directly hit level. the CIA-backed it has no, okay so don't say so don't ground, say which are the do not say that they have targeted them, american uh, forces and they have admitted this um the russian ministry of defense uh, explicitly stated this two days ago I, I don't know if you were um familiar but they said that they struck um at the southern front at the uh, t uh tau um uh, munitions facility um, of the Southern Front and at the warehouse where the Taos um, were um, placed. Um, that's not and, called. That's um, not called attacking American forces. Guys. And so, so when we is. talk about you know hitting their guys, we're not talking about hitting Russian troops. We're talking about hitting their guys in Syria, um, which are the um, Assad ground forces. And this would only happen if they violated a no-fly zone. And obviously, in creating a no-fly zone, we would. Um, warn Russia um, not to enter into these areas. But with Russia um, entering in and, uh, you know, by saying that Ru Russia has a no-fly zone in Syria, what I mean is with Russia um, being allowed to um, fly and hit our um, uh, rebels, which we back as the United States to this day, um, without um, protecting them, um, and without, uh, you know, by allowing them to do this um, and by saying that we won't enter because we're afraid of conflict with Russia, um, this is essentially saying that they have um, put this in. So, um, you know, I think um, with them taking such an escalatory and aggressive step in Syria, which is uh, exacerbating the fight against ISIS, 
um, especially as these forces have also fought against ISIS, I do think um, it does um, create um, essential dilemmas for us, and uh, it is not, um, you know, uh, as escalatory of a step as it seems to say, no, you know, we supported these guys, and um, we will not let you fly over and hit these guys. If you want to hit ISIS, that's fine. Um, but if you want to hit these guys, we're not going to let you hit these guys. Um, and uh, Omar, let, let's let's uh, Mr. Philip uh, let him finish his comments, please. Sorry about that. Now, my only comment is that there, uh, the Omar's comments now were an elaboration and interpretation of what he said before, and I think that the situation is abysmal enough without us ask, adding imprecise rhetoric. There is no no-fly zone in Russia today, and therefore Russia is not keeping American planes out of it, and Russia has not attacked American forces for no other reason that there really are no American forces other than a few advisors. That's actually inaccurate. Let's go on. Then. Let's go on. If, if I can focus on the, the, the questioner's uh, interest of Russian, Russian military policy and Russian political policy in uh, Syria, we note that historically uh, Russia has sought uh, a warm water port. It is seeking to uh, re reemerge as a more powerful uh, world power. Uh, Russia has lost its naval force, naval naval port at Mirzal Kebir in Algeria. Uh, the Turkish Straits are a chokehold on the Russian naval uh, uh, access to the Mediterranean and elsewhere. It has now reestablished itself in the Syrian port of Latakia. That is an important element in the overall Russian strategy of positioning itself and showing the Russian flag. The Russian flag has also uh, been reestablished in a number of air bases in uh, northern and northwestern Syria, all of which add to the Russian capability to extend its influence, and by extending its influence, it thereby reduces American capabilities in the region which is another important uh, aspect of Russian po policy. The United States, of course, does not want to return to the Cold War atmosphere, but it does certainly have, as one of its, one of its national security interests, to reduce, limit uh, Russian presence and influence in the region, which, is, which it has uh, been successful at for at least uh, a decade. But uh, l let's have no uh, illusions that Russia is attempting to place itself in the region as uh, permanently and as strongly as uh, reasonably possible. Well, uh, thank you very much. I'm afraid this is all the time we have. It's 3.05 now. I uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, Chuck Freelich, Senior Fellow, International Secu uh, Security Program at Harvard University, Dr. Sanford Silverberg, Professor of Emeritus at Catawba College, and Omar Hosino, Public Relations Director at Syrian American Council. Thank you for your participation, and thank you for this lively discussion. And for those who are listening, uh, we will make this available later on tomorrow on our website. And uh, if you if you can if you miss parts of it, please go to our website turkheritage.org uh, to uh, get a transcript and listen to the conversation. Thank you.